We're continuing to learn how to read the Bible better. And 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice the first phrase, how important it is that all Scripture, not some of the Scripture, not most of the Scripture, and certainly not the Scripture that we agree with is inspired by God, but all of it is inspired by God. That means every verse. And the idea of inspiration isn't just that God uh, gave the, the writers of the Bible some insight. Oh, wow, that was an inspiration. No, it means that God breathed. His word is breathed into what we know as the Bible. Of course, the, the, God didn't take the hands of the writers and, and move the quill or whatever they were writing with to create the Bible. They, there are human authors with human personalities, and you can see their fingerprints on what's written. But all of the scripture comes from God. That's where it originates. And that's why when we read it, we are listening to God, not to Paul or Peter or Moses. It's God that speaks. So if that's true, if everything in scripture is true and it comes from God, then there shouldn't be any errors. There shouldn't be any mistakes. There shouldn't be any contradictions because God should know the truth and God wouldn't contradict himself and God wouldn't put errors in the Bible. Yet, there are many today, especially critics of Christianity, who will read the Bible and say, it's filled with errors. It's filled with contradictions. It's filled with problems. And they will point to it and say, how can you Christians read this book? How can you believe it? How can you use it to live your life? Well, it's obvious that nowadays in the 21st century, because of science, we know the truth about things. And as you read the Bible, it looks like these are some guys that didn't know what was going on. The, the, the stuff in here is centuries old, written by people that lived a long time before science. And so they got it wrong, and that's okay because they didn't know any better. But we know better today, and we don't have to listen to the Bible because... That was just written by men centuries ago when we have science today to tell us the truth. So how do we read the Bible and how do we understand, especially in light of, of science? Uh, the lesson we need to learn today is that the Bible is not a science textbook. So let me explain what I mean by that. Let's talk about biology and see what the Bible says about that uh, <coughs> science question. Are bats birds or mammals? This is always a trick question for like elementary age kids, isn't it, when you're taking your science biology test? So you can say the answer. What are they? Mammals, right. Well, the Bible says they're birds. Leviticus 11:13 says, "You are to abhor these birds. They must not be eaten because they are abhorrent." And then there's a list of birds, and at the end of the list are bats. All right. Well, what does the Bible say, say about grasshoppers? You can even look at the picture and see that grasshoppers have six legs. But Leviticus 11 says all winged insects that walk on all fours are to be abhorrent to you. And in that list of insects are grasshoppers. 
Huh, okay. What about a rabbit or a hare? Do they chew the cud? And, and that's a weird thing, isn't it? But you, you know what cows do. Cows will eat grass, and then they'll digest it. Then they'll kind of throw it up, and they'll eat it again and digest it again. And so cows have more than one stomach, and they do this weird thing with, called chewing the cud. So I'm glad we're not cows, okay? But that's what cows do. And so God says, but among the ones that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you are not to eat these. And included in that list are hares or rabbits. And rabbits and hares don't do that with their food like cows do. So, the science writers, the Bible right? Let's look at some more examples. Let's think about anatomy. Where does thinking and emotions happen? Science tells us that happens in our brains. The Bible says that thinking happens in the heart. God comments about how the men in Noah's day were evil, and all the intentions and thoughts of their heart were evil. Proverbs says, as a person thinks in his heart, so he is. And speaking of Jesus' knowledge of people, Luke says Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts. Where are our emotions? The Bible says they're in our kidneys. That sounds strange, doesn't it? My kidneys will exalt when your lips speak what is right. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the kidneys. I am the one searching kidneys and hearts. I know we talk about Jesus being the great physician, the great healer, but here it sounds like he is a medical doctor, isn't he? He's checking out the kidneys and the hearts to see if they're functioning right. So it sounds strange to us, doesn't it? The Bible would say that kidneys are where emotions are. And if you're thinking, I've read the Bible over and over, I've never seen the word kidneys in there. Well, you're right, most English translations don't translate it as kidneys, even though that is the literal translation. They usually translate it as heart, and we'll talk about why in a moment. Let's talk about math. What's the value of pi, the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter? Uh, we know it's 3.14, and it goes on and on and on and on and on. You see on the, on the slide here, it could go on for infinity, so we don't know it keeps going and going. But the Bible says the value of pi is 3. If you look at 1 Kings 7.23, this is talking about King Solomon and, and his palace and what he was building. And it said that he built this sea of cast metal. It was round 10 cubits from brim to brim and 5 cubits high. And a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. If you divide 30 by 10, you get 3. Let's talk about cosmology. Okay, let's... Ask whether the earth is flat or it's round. We all know that it's round. Does the Bible say that it's flat? It talks in Genesis about the sun rising and the sun setting, which makes sense if the earth is flat. It talks about the four corners of the earth and the ends of the earth. That all makes sense if the earth is flat. It would have corners. It would have an edge that you could fall off of. Does the Bible say the earth is flat? How about how we got here? You know, science tells us that we evolved. Everything that's alive came from cells that were in this soup that uh, some chemical came together and created life. And from that, all life evolved. Whereas the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, who's right is the Bible right? Science right? The science and the Bible contradict each other? 
And if so, is the Bible wrong? I want to tell you this about the Bible. <clears throat> Everything it says is true, even when it talks about science. But the Bible isn't a science textbook. Now let me explain the difference between being true and being a textbook. Let's think about love for a moment. I want you to imagine how you feel when you feel love. I want you to imagine what it feels like to be loved. I want you to think about maybe how you would define love. Now think about this. In our culture, there's lots of different ways that you could talk about love and that we do. When you send a Valentine card, it talks about love. When you read a psychology textbook, it talks about love. When you hear a love song, it talks about love. Now, all three of those talk about love, but they sound completely different. Lots of the Valentine cards are just sappy, and this kind of sugary sweet. And the love songs often are the same way. I graduated with a psychology degree, and I can tell you when you read a psychology textbook about love, it sounds boring, it sounds clinical, it sounds like who would want to love or be loved if that's what it is. It doesn't describe it the way we feel it, the way that we uh, know it to be. I mean, think about the love that you feel and how it feels to be loved, and you read a textbook, it just doesn't match up. And you see how a song and a card and a textbook can all be talking about the same thing and be truthful about what it says, but come to it from a different perspective and in a different context. The Valentine cards aren't wrong about love, although they may be sappy. The, the, the psychology textbook's not wrong about love when it talks about neurons and about your brain and about stimuli. It's not wrong. And when Huey Lewis sings The Power of Love, he's not wrong about it when he sings about it makes you do things that you wouldn't normally do. That's true, isn't it? So these things aren't wrong. They're not even contradictory. You can't say that, well, the Valentine card has errors in it because it talks about how the love flows from your heart. When it doesn't, it comes from your brain. It's not wrong. It's talking about love in a different way. And so the same is true when it comes to the Bible and science. Let's talk about those animals for a moment. Uh, do you realize that you can classify things any way you want to depending on how you define them? In all those verses I read to you about the bats and the grasshoppers, it comes only in one place in Scripture, and it's when God is speaking to the Israelites and telling them which foods are clean that they can eat and which foods are unclean which they can't eat. So again, if I'm going to have categories of animals, and the broadest category is clean and unclean, and I'm going to tell you these you can eat, these you can't eat, how is an Israelite going to know the classification of animals. They're going to look at the animals to see. And when they look at animals, then they will be able to decide. And so that's what God is doing. It's, it's the same conundrum we have with whether a tomato is a fruit or a vegetable. If you ask a biologist, he will tell you it's a fruit. Because the biologist is looking at all the parts of a plant, 
And if you've ever been, I don't even remember all of them, but I remember in biology class, they had the, the picture of plants, all the labels, the roots and the stem and all this. And the fruit of the plant would be the tomato. If you ask a chef, she's going to say it is a vegetable. It's not a fruit. And why is that? Because chefs will categorize and define things differently. Uh, when you're cooking, vegetables are savory. They're not sweet. When you're cooking with tomatoes, you are making savory dishes, not sweet dishes. You're not serving them for dessert. So that's why, to a cook, a tomato is a vegetable. Now, is the cook wrong? No. Is the scientist wrong? No. They're both right because they're defining what a vegetable and a fruit is differently. And if you define it differently, then it will be in a different category. You see, definitions and categories are human-made. They're man-made. We made them up. The scientist in the 17th century is the one who started making up the categories. So you can make categories and definitions any way you want, as a chef and a cook do differently as well. And so when it comes to the bat, I mean, if you define as God was defining what a bird is, something bigger than an insect that has wings and flies, then a bat is a bird. And that's what the Israelites were looking at. Again, they're thinking visually. They can see a bat. They can see it flying. They know it's not an insect. By that definition, it is a bird. Walking on all fours is a, is a figure of speech for being on the ground, crawling. Grasshoppers don't fly. Yes, they jump around. They jump pretty high. They're, not a, they're a non-flying insect. So they walk on all fours. They crawl on the ground. It's a figure of speech. Again, if you look visually at a rabbit, I can't do it because I'm not a rabbit, but their cheeks are like this. Right? <laughs> That's what they look like. When they're eating, it looks like a cow going... You know, they look the same. So a rabbit when it eats and a cow when it eats, when it eats look the same. So that's why they're in the same category. Visually, if you're looking at how an animal eats, then a rabbit does chew its cud. So you see the point? It's how you define, how you categorize. And just like the chef and the scientist, neither one are wrong. They're just using different categories and different definitions. And that's what the Bible is doing as well. Like with the grasshopper, the Bible uses figures of speech. We do the same thing in our English language, except for we use different ones. For us, our emotions are in our heart. That's why a Valentine card has a heart on it. It doesn't have a brain on it. Does that mean that you don't know the difference? Does that mean that scientists think that our emotions really are in our heart? No. But none of us want to have a Valentine card with a brain on it. That's why they don't have them on there. Uh, think about Celine Dion when she's singing, My Heart Will Go On, and she's singing the theme song to the Titanic, and she's saying, My Brain Will Go On. I mean, that's more biologically correct. But who's going to buy a song, My Brain Will Go On? You know, who wants to listen to that? Because we use figures of speech. The Bible does the same thing. No one claimed that Celine Dion was an idiot and didn't know that our brain has synapses and all this networking and this is what creates feelings and emotions. They didn't say that about her because they liked the song. My heart will go on. So figures of speech are used in the Bible just as we use them. 
You can't see the fine details in this uh, snapshot of this app, but it's telling you the, the temperature and the date and the time and the sunrise and the sunset. When a meteorologist tells us the sun rises at 6.30 in the morning, he's not saying that the earth is flat. That's just how we use language. We do this, the Bible does the same thing. The ends of the earth means the farthest part of the earth. The four corners mean the entire earth. Again, they're figures of speech. They're not textbook answers to a question, is the earth flat or round? And let's be honest, when, as we live on the earth, it's flat. Everything we do, we're traveling in directions. We're not traveling on a sphere, even though we know it is because we can prove it. But the way we live our life, it lives as though we're on a flat earth. And so that's why we use figures of speech in our language that describes a flat earth, because that's our experience. The sun does rise. It does set. And it sets on a horizon. So that's why we use those words in that language. In fact, the Bible says the earth is round. God is enthroned, Isaiah 40 says, above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers that crawl on all fours, I guess. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. So the Bible nowhere says the earth is flat. In fact, it says that it's round and that it uses figures of speech like we do. Of course, the Bible sometimes uses approximate numbers rather than precise numbers. As you can imagine, uh, in ancient times, they didn't have all of the equipment to measure precisely that we do today. And so they would use measurements based on your body, because everybody's got a body, so that makes it real easy. And so how big is a, a cubit? It's basically the, the measurement from your elbow to your middle finger. So it's about 18 inches, but is everybody's arm the same length? Of course not. So it's an approximation, not a precise number. In fact, we still kind of do the same thing today. We all know that a foot was at one time the size of the king's actual foot. And so it is pretty close as well for most people. And so even when I'm doing measurements that I don't need to be precise, I will use my feet and I will walk and measure that way. And it works out fine, as long as it doesn't need to be precise. So the Bible does the same thing. The value of pi is 3.14, whatever, 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 but isn't it about 3? And so, especially if you're measuring with this, it's going to be close to 3. So using approximations is not the same thing as using errors. Just because something isn't precise doesn't mean that it's wrong. Think about a birthday cake. Does anybody really care if a cake's divided equally into eight precise parts or that uh, it's uh, measured correctly and cut correctly? And Nobody cares about that. We just want the piece of cake and we want to enjoy it. So cutting a cake, it doesn't matter how precise the counting is. What's important is enjoying the cake. So precise numbers are needed sometimes, but approximate numbers aren't errors. They're just not as precise. And the Bible focuses more on the who and why of creation rather than how the world was created. I wish I had time to talk about the holes in the theory of evolution and, and the, uh, the strength of the truth of creation, but I don't have time to do all of that today, but I will make some brief comments about it. You know, the Bible tells us that God created the world in, in six days. 
And as the words are described for us, it does indicate that those are six literal days, 24-hour periods. It talks about evening and morning, and that's how the Israelites would count the day. Their day started in the evening rather than in the morning like ours do. And it uses the word first day, second day, third day. Every time in the Bible it uses the number plus the day, it means 24 hours. So, because if I read the Bible and it says that God created it in six days and they're 24 hour periods, I can believe that because I believe God can do anything. Now, do I know all the details of how it happened? God gives us some details. But he doesn't give us all the precise details because what's most important is that verse 1 of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And what's most important is chapter 2 when there's more detail given about how Adam and Eve were created and how Adam was created from the dust of the ground, but God breathed into him the, uh, the life and that we are created in God's image and that Eve was created from Adam. And so that's what's most important is that God has created us for a purpose, and He has made us especially, He's made us different from the animals. We are not simply animals. We are created in the image of God. We are His image bearers. We were created to have a relationship with Him, and that's what's most important. What's also most important is what happens next, how Adam and Eve had one rule to obey, and they disobeyed it, and how sin entered the world and messed everything up. And broke that relationship with God. But that God promised a deliverer, a savior would come. And that Jesus Christ is the son of God who did come and pay the penalty for sin. And defeat Satan and conquer death, the consequence of that sin in the garden. That's the story of the Bible and that's what's most important. So God's concerned about us knowing the truth that he created us. But that he created us for a purpose. And that there is a reason why he came. When the story fits all together, it makes sense. And you can see why God wouldn't be concerned about all of the details of it. He gives us enough of the details to know how he created the world. And, it, and if this is what I think about this. If everything else in the Bible we want to believe, if we want to believe that Jesus died for our sins, if we want to believe there's a heaven that we're going to, if we want to believe that uh, God can heal us and that God is in control of this world, and we want to believe all that about the Bible, why don't we trust God when he tells us about something that no one but him knows about? <laughs> he was the only one there. So I think I, can I think I can trust him if he tells me what happened on that beginning of creation if he was the only one there. there was, last I checked, there were no scientists there to see it. So how do they know? You know, Again, I could talk about how the, the, the scientific theory of evolution has more contradictions, more errors in it, more holes in it, more assumptions in it than the truth of creation. And so that's why, with confidence, I believe that God created and that evolution is not how this world came about, nor how we came about. I said, I don't have time to delve into it, but I'll give you three quick things from science itself that really just blows that theory out of the water. The biggest one, I think, is the fact that we have never, ever observed any life coming from non-life. 
every single person who's alive, every single plant, every single insect, every single virus, everything that's alive, I don't know if a virus is alive or not, whatever, whatever's alive, it came from another living thing. Nothing that we have ever seen, observed, has come from something that's not living. Yet that's the whole premise of the whole theory of evolution. So science is doing the exact opposite of what it says we're supposed to do. We're supposed to observe and make deductions from what we observe. Science is making observations and, doing, and stating the exact opposite of what we observe. The fact that as we see life, anything that has any kind of complexity to it, we know it has somebody behind it who's made it. Nothing that's just thrown into randomness and chaos ever comes out as something ordered and something with purpose. Yet again, that's what evolution says. Again, contradicting what we observe and what we see. And also the fact that as we see this earth, and especially as you think biologically of mutations happening, mutations always make things worse. They never make things better. We think about humanity and how life has changed over the centuries and, and we have more diseases and more sicknesses and more problems with human health over the centuries because, in a sense, biologically, we're de-evolving or whatever that's called, okay? Because there's been mutations and those always bring problems. They don't create new things and better things. So it's amazing to me that the theory of evolution actually is the opposite of what we observe, yet it's thrust upon us as the fact of science and of this universe of how we came to be. In reality, it's based on one assumption, that there is no God. And that's really where it starts, if anyone wants to be honest. If there's no God, then we had to get here some way, and let's make up a story so that we can have people without a creator. The Bible tells us we're here because we have a creator who loves us and gave us purpose and created us for a relationship. And so there's no contradiction between true science that's seeking to observe and look at the universe and the Bible. Because the Bible is not a textbook. It's describing life in figurative language, it's using approximate numbers, that's classifying based on what was needed at the time. It's true in everything that it says. Think about this. The first scientists in the Western world were Christians. And they were driven by their Christianity to find out more about this universe that God had created. And when science is put in that perspective, it's a wonderful thing. The more we observe, the more we know, the more that we're able to manipulate, if you want to use that word, the, the environment around us, what we're doing really is fulfilling what God put Adam in the garden for, to work it and to till it, to, more than that, to be over it. And so that's why I applaud science when it's seeking and looking for the truth when it's observing and knowing more about the universe. The only time there's conflict is when scientists assume from the beginning without any proof that there is no God. 
Well, if you're going to assume that and start with that, then of course it's going to be contrary to Christianity because there is a God, and that's what we stand on and what we believe. That's where the contradiction comes. That's like coming from Christianity. That's coming from an assumption by the scientist who doesn't want to admit there's a God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you show us about who we are. You reveal to us who you are. That you have given us your word as a, as a not only a place of knowledge, but a place, Lord, to find meaning in life and to know the ultimate truth of how we got here, who we are, where we're going, and how to make meaning of life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to read our Bibles with confidence. Confidence in you, Lord, that you would always tell us the truth. Confidence that when we read it and we see something that seems to contradict science, that, Lord, when we dig deeper and have the proper context, we see there's no contradiction whatsoever. And I'm thankful, Lord, in fact, that as science finds out more about our universe, it's amazing how more and more of it aligns with your word. So I'm thankful, Lord, the more we know, the closer we are to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us also to be Christians who want to give an answer, to be able to, to defend our faith when critics would ridicule us and critics would uh, deride us or make fun of us because of what they have picked and taken out of context. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be intimidated by them, but that we would learn so that we're able to give an answer in love, but backed by truth and logic and reason. Lord, I pray now that we would respond to you and however you've spoken to our heart. And I pray we do so with great faith. And I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Stand with me, please. We're going to sing as we close our service. But it's also a time to respond to what the Lord has spoken to your heart. I know in sharing science versus the Bible, maybe it's not an obvious way to respond other than throwing your textbook out. No, that's not the way to respond. But anyway, so, but think about this. Think about the God who created us and how he wants to have a relationship with us. Is that relationship with him right? Also think about his word and how much do you really know it and how close are you really to him? Those are two great ways to respond to this message this morning. Let's respond. Let's sing together. I'll be here to pray with you if you have any need. Oh
Before we dismiss in prayer, I want to remind you of this. We're still collecting our offering for our Alma Hunt State Missions, so please continue to give to that. We've passed the goal, but you can still give more. Also, our baptism and Lord's Supper service will be October the 6th instead of next Sunday. There's some other things in the bulletin that are new. I want you to please look at those, especially there's one about the WMU collecting items uh, for veterans. You can read what the items are and the purpose of that. Plus some other things that are happening in our community that other churches are doing that I want you to be aware of so that you can be part of that and Camp Concord as well. The big news is, of course, next Sunday, Brady Bassett will be here. The search committee unanimously presents him to the church as candidate for youth pastor. So please be here next Sunday. You will get to meet him. You'll get to hear him preach. You'll get to hear the search committee introduce him. And then if you're a church member, we will vote on, on calling uh, Brady to Olive Branch Baptist Church. So it'll be a great Sunday next week. Please be here. And what better time to have a youth pastor than when the police get called to my house on Friday night after a youth activity. Okay, so I just want to explain that real quick. And this is the perfect time to have a youth pastor if the, pa the police are coming to the pastor's house. We need someone to get things straightened out. But uh, we had a great time at Swaders Friday night, uh, taking the youth up there with, with the go-karts and the arcade and all of that fun stuff. We came back, uh, we dropped some of the uh, youth off at my house. I wasn't there because I was bringing the rest of them here to the church, but uh, the youth were outside, they were having fun, just talking, apparently too loud, I don't know, because one of the neighbors called the police. And so the police show up to the house and uh, the call came in that someone was in distress. So I don't know who was too loud that sounded like they were in distress or had the wrong pitch, but maybe it's just youth ministry does lead to distress. I don't know if that's what it is, but we're going to have a, a, a great Sunday next week, and hopefully police will never come to my house again, nor to Brady's house or whoever's house when we have youth activities. But I do want you to know that in case you heard some rumors that the cops were at the pastor's house. That's the reason. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time today and pray that you would dismiss us now with your peace, with your presence, and your love. And I pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.